Revelation 14, uh, verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Hey, we had a we had a membership class uh, just yesterday. Um, like like Cami said, it's exciting to see like our church grow, have new people join the church family. Uh, if you're a member uh, of our church, a covenant member who's already gone through that, um, I want to invite you to uh, just be praying uh, for these seven people that uh, went through the class last time. Uh, make yourself available if you know who they are to answer questions. Uh, just uh, let them know what God is doing like in and through our church. Uh, always exciting to see uh, new people. Uh, join the church family. Um, and so let me, uh, we got a lot to go through, so why don't I pray for us, and then we'll get started, okay? Um, Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here in this room, um, for those who are um, maybe sick and providentially hindered from being here in person, streaming online, and um, we're just uh, grateful um, to call each other family, grateful for the the awesome privilege that we have to, to worship you freely in this place and to, um, and to read your word, to study it, um, to see what you might have to say to us and how you might desire to change us. We uh, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, especially those who um, cannot worship freely like, like we can right now. We pray for uh, the Christians who have left their, their homes and their, and their cities in Ukraine. And uh, we just trust God that um, all these things that just seem so horrible and terrible to us, uh, we trust your word when you say that you work all things for the good of those who love you. God, you are great. You are worthy. Uh, and so we just surrender our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in his uh, devotional commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, this, this uh, commentator, the scholar Daryl Johnson, he begins his comments on, on this passage uh, by retelling a story from Charles Soch's uh, uh, Peanuts cartoon. You guys remember Peanuts with like Snoopy and Charlie Brown and all that? And so uh, 
he, he retells a story where Charlie Brown is approached by his little sister, Sally, which if you've ever seen like the cartoons or read the comic strip, you know, she's like always trying to like get on his nerves. And, and uh, it's this like funny scene where, where Charlie Brown is just sitting there. His little sister, Sally, comes up and she says, hey, I memorized the Bible verse we were supposed to memorize for Sunday. Uh, and Charlie Brown goes, huh? Like what verse? And she replies, I, I don't know, like you made, me, you made me forget. Maybe it was something that Moses said or something from the book of reevaluation. Um, that's what she calls it, the book of reevaluation. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a great way to actually describe this book that we're studying. The book of Revelation pulls the curtain back so that we can see like what's really happening behind the scenes of history. What's beneath, <coughs> excuse me, what's beneath the suffering that we go through in the world? Why Christians have been persecuted uh, as a people throughout history? Why do the nations rage and where do we place our hope in the middle of all that? <coughs> and so we turn now <coughs> to Revelation 14, which, <coughs> excuse me, in Revelation 14, uh, you, you do have to set it <coughs> Within the context, there it is. Like I said, man, I'm a joke today. Thank you. Um, So uh, Revelation 14, to understand it rightly, you got to take it within the context of what came before. And so if you've been following us for the last uh, few weeks, we saw in Revelation 12, we were introduced to the great red dragon in, uh, in Revelation and no, the great red dragon is not the nation of China, <laughs> like you may have been told, right? Like the great red dragon uh, uh, symbolizes our, our enemy Satan, the great deceiver, and how he is after uh, Christ. He, he seeks to devour Christ, but because he fails, Christ is born, he lives, he dies, he rises from the grave, Satan is now literally hell-bent on destroying, devouring God's people, followers of Jesus. <clears throat> and so we saw in Revelation 13 that uh, this great dragon, he, he often works through these demonic beasts. The first beast represents uh, how uh, demonic forces seek to work through political powers to try and snuff out Christianity, to try and persecute God's people, even to the point of getting them martyred. And then the second demonic force, the second demonic beast, seeks to work through false teachers and false prophets, trying to get them to seduce them into worshiping idols, turning away from Christ. <laughs> and then chapter 14 tells us what God basically does about it. What is God's response? And in our passage today, we'll see that while this, this cosmic conflict, this cosmic battle is raging on behind the scenes, something, something else is happening on the earth. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being announced throughout the world. The seeds of the kingdom are being sown, and soon Jesus will reap the harvest of the gospel. And that's our big idea for today. Now, while the cosmic battle rages on, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being announced throughout the world. The seeds of the kingdom of God are being sown, and soon Jesus will reap the harvest of the gospel. So we're going to work through Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6, going all the way to the end, where we see three words of proclamation, 
And then two ways that we can respond to those words. So first, let's look at the three words of proclamation. The first proclamation we see is a message of good news. A message of good news. We start seeing it in verse 6 when it says, uh, John explains this vision and he says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. What does that word gospel mean? It means good news. And so he sees this, this angel with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Now, a form of that phrase, every tribe and language and, and people appeared in chapter 13, where the first demonic beast was said to have received authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And what does that beast do with that authority? He, he seeks to deceive the world. He seeks to lead humanity into the devil's lie. But while demonic forces are spreading deception around the world, chapter 14 here tells us that angelic forces are spanning the globe with the gospel of God's kingdom to those very same nations and people and languages. In chapter 12, if you remember, it says that the saints will conquer through the word of their testimony. Isn't that rad? Our message is the one that wins. Our message is the one that wins. And so the first angel, he takes the eternal gospel, the eternal good news, and he takes it around the world. And here's what he says in verse 7. It says, uh, the angel said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So <coughs> fear God and glorify him. Like, I don't know, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? Why? Why do we call it good news? Why is this called an eternal gospel? In light of Revelation 13, and the beast who come up from the, the sea and the land, verse 7 here is a word of relief. It's telling us that the lamb, the one who laid... <coughs> What's going on? <coughs> <laughs> Rewind. The lamb, the one who laid down his life, the suffering servant, the one who was described as gentle and lowly, he's the Lord of creation, not the beasts. Not the ones that came up from the earth, not the ones that came up from the sea, but the lamb, he's the creator. You see, if we were created by the creator of all things and made for a personal relationship with him, then, then, then we won't be who we were created to be until we fear God, which is a way of saying to see him rightly, to see that God is God and that we are not, to ascribe him the glory due his name to give credence to the power that he has over us. That's what it means to fear God and to give him glory. It's like how I just bought this like portable charging device for my computer because I'm like, I'm, I'm always running out of juice. Like when I'm out uh, working on my laptop away from the house. And so uh, I got this device that like basically can, is an external charger for my laptop. And uh, like if, if you've, if you don't know, it's actually hard to find these. Like, it's easy to find the ones that can charge up your phone or your iPad or whatever. Uh, but to find one that can, like, actually power up like a MacBook Pro, um, I had to, like, 
search for this. And so it comes and it doesn't work like those other external chargers. It's got like all these, these buttons and switches on it um, um, based on like where you're plugging in the wire. And so like I tried to use it just outside the box, but I couldn't because I, I didn't have all the right switches in the right order. I didn't know which ones had to be pushed. And so I actually had to go to the manual and see how the manufacturer designed it to work. You see, our hearts will be restless until we find our rest, until we find our salvation in our creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel says the hour of judgment has come. He's saying the hour of the kingdom is at hand. And that's also good news, because that's the good news that Jesus preached. Like, what did Jesus say when he, when he showed up on the scene after he got baptized by John? He says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is near. In other words, this angel is spreading the good news that the kingdom of darkness is coming to an end and the kingdom of light is gonna start breaking in, pushing that darkness back. We see second proclamation in the next verse. The second proclamation is this, that Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. Verse 8 says another angel, a second, followed that first one saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now what does that mean? If you remember from previously, uh, in a previous sermon, like Babylon is often a, a metaphor for really any civilization, any sort of human civilization that is degraded by sin. Any civilization that, that sort of woos people in with, with power and with privilege and then values the things that God hates and, and promotes the things that God condemns. That's why the angel describes Babylon as she who drinks the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. In other words, that's a way of saying that, that, that these are, are, are people who follow the lust of the flesh, who follow the fleshly desire that we all have to do whatever the heck we want. And the angel says they're bringing on themselves the judgment of God. Now, is that, is that good news? Is it good news that Babylon will fall, that they're bringing on themselves the judgment of God? Like, of course it is. Babylon's trying to, the beast is working behind the scenes of Babylon, pulling all the strings to try and lead people away from Christ. You see, because of the headiness of her wine, people can't hear the gospel. Because of the lust of the flesh, people are hardened to the gospel. And so God is going to make their systems fall. And John's actually going to develop this more in chapter 17 through 19. But I want you, what I want you to notice here is that it says the beast has fallen. The beast has fallen. Now, if... You look around the world right now, it doesn't seem like the beast has fallen, does it? Especially now with Russia invading Ukraine. Lots of churches getting displaced from Ukraine. Or Christians having to meet underground in fear of persecution like in Pakistan or North Korea or, or China. all because it's illegal to worship anything other than the state. And if you remember, that's how the beast works. 
while the full victory of the lamb over the beast is in the future, the victory of the cross is so definitive, it's so final that John talks about it in the past tense. That's why he can say, Babylon has fallen. Fallen is Babylon. It's sort of a cheeky way of saying that, look, the beast and the dragon, they're living on borrowed time. Don't follow them anymore. Follow the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And then there's a third proclamation. A third proclamation in the next verses, which is a warning of coming judgment. Things start to get gnarly here. Warning of coming judgment. Beginning in verse 9, it says, Another angel, a third, followed them, the first two angels. And this angel said with a loud voice, If anyone... If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, really quick, we established this already, but in case you're, you're, you're joining us or tuning in for the first time, the mark of the beast is not the vaccine, all right? The mark of the beast is not a tattoo you get on your head. It's not a barcode that gets placed on your forehead or anything like that. Like, that's the stuff of pop culture, right? That's the stuff of, like, over-characterization, all right? I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, right? And so, and so the mark of the beast being placed on the heads of people or worn on their wrists, as we read about in, in, in chapter 13, is to say that, um, hey, either, either through the way that you think, the ideologies that you hold, or about the way that you live, what you do with your hands, that's where our enemy, Satan, is going to try and get you. He's going to try to get to the way that you think. He's going to try to get to the way that the things that you do, that you put your hands to, the way that you work, the way that you live. And so here this angel is saying, look, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, in other words, if you follow the ideology of demonic forces, turning away from Christ, verse 10, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name these verses are about the judgment of hell for those that don't turn to Christ. Look, I, I know this is not a popular topic to preach about, right? You don't grow mega churches by preaching on the doctrine of hell. I know that this is a difficult topic for some of us to stomach. Like most, most of you know people who don't believe in hell at all. And those of us who do, I mean, we don't like to think about it. We'd rather just focus on the stuff about Jesus. What's interesting is that more than anyone in all the scriptures, Jesus himself talked the most about hell. Did you know that? So if the Lord of love, the friend of sinners, the giver of eternal life, the author of grace, if he spoke about hell more than anyone else, then it's got to be an important truth for us. I think the reason that we sort of have this like knee-jerk aversion to hell is that 
our picture of it is more culturally informed than it is biblically informed. Our idea of hell is more a caricature of the real thing than an actual, like, Bible-informed understanding of it. We get this picture of like this fiery, big underground cave where God is vindictively punishing people who didn't do what he said. No, dude, there's, there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more to it. I think, I think if, we, if we're willing to press in, study the scriptures on it, wrestle with it, then we'll see that there's actually more comfort to be found here than there would be if we just pretended it doesn't exist. The angel, he's, what he's describing here is, it's intentionally horrifying. Talks about fire and sulfur, echoes of, which those words echo the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. And in verse 11, it says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, that smoke going up forever and ever, no rest day and night. Like that's a deliberate contrast to the forever and ever and the day and night that we saw described of the worship that happens in heaven. What does that tell us? That tells us that how we choose to live our lives, what we allow to control and in, 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 like uh, uh, impose our, on our, our ideology and how we live, who we give our allegiance to, those things have eternal consequences. In verse 10, God's judgment is described with the same imagery of drinking the cup of wrath. That's fascinating, right? I mean, we saw the same thing in in verse eight. And if you remember in chapter nine, we briefly saw God's judgment being described as him finally giving you over to what you want, giving you over to the things that your flesh wants, which just ends up destroying you in the end. There's a theologian, J.I. Packer, who's really helpful here. It's like a kind of a long chunk of text, so I didn't make a slide for it. But I want to read this to you. This is from his systematic theology called Knowing God. Packer says, God's wrath in the Bible is something which men choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. When John writes, he who does not believe in Jesus is condemned or judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, he goes on to explain himself as follows. He says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He means, this is still the quote, he means just what he says, that the decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass upon themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. In the last analysis, all that God does subsequently in judicial action towards the unbeliever, whether in this life or beyond it, is to show him and lead him into the full implications of the choice he has made. 
The basic choice was and is simple, either to respond to the summons of Jesus, come unto me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, or not. Either to save one's life by keeping it from Jesus's presence and resisting his demand to take it over, or to lose your life by denying oneself, taking up your cross, becoming a disciple, and letting Jesus have his own disruptive way with you. In the former case, Jesus tells us we may gain the whole world, but it will do us no good, for we shall lose our souls. But in the latter case, by losing our life for his sake, we shall find it. See, God's judgment is very much much a, a sense in which he just finally gives us over to the things that we want apart from him. And they just end up destroying us for eternity. So while the dragon and his beasts are deceiving the world and working against the mission of the church, these angels come in and they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching that the hour has come, that Babylon has fallen, that you choose who you worship. And in verse 14 through 20, what we see is that there's a great harvest coming. Look at verse 14. It's, he, John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now this verse, verse 14, is actually at the, at the heart of this passage. How do we know that? Uh, for a couple reasons. It's because of the way that this passage is, is uh, sort of sandwiched between two instances of three angels that were preaching this gospel and then three angels that you'll see with the harvest. And on the outside of that, that whole thing is sandwiched by a celebration by God's people singing, which we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 14, and that we'll see next week with God's people celebrating at the beginning of chapter 15. So if you're following me, you got a passage, a few verses about God's people singing. You got uh, this uh, passage about three angels. Then you've got verse 14. Then you got another passage with three angels, and then God's people celebrating again. This is what in the Bible is called a, 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 a chiasm. And so whenever you see a chiasm in the scriptures, whatever is in the middle is the point, is the primary point that needs to be made. And what is in the middle? Verse 14, let me read it again. He says, I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man. Who's the son of man? That's Jesus. And he's got a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. You see, all the other verses in this passage are orbiting around this one like planets around the sun. And John, he sees Jesus, the son of man, and he sees him as somebody who's sitting on on a cloud. He's got a crown on his head. He's got a sickle in his hand ready to reap a harvest. You see, at the heart of our passage, at the very center of our passage, sits the coming judge of all the earth. And he's waiting. And he's positioned. He's positioned to reap the harvest on the last day of history. So don't miss this point. The question The question that the Holy Spirit wants us to ask by putting this verse at the center of this passage 
It's almost to provoke us to ask ourselves, how have we prepared for that day? How is it that we've prepared for that great harvest day when the judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ones who makes the angels sing, the one who keeps and all his elect to they preserve to the end, the one who makes the demons tremble, the creator of all the earth, when he sits as judge over all the earth on the final day, ready to reap the harvest, how have we prepared our hearts for that great day? That's the question of our text. And well, that question might be a little terrifying to consider, I just want to say, like, look, man, it probably should be. It probably should be. But it's also helpful. It's helpful, man. Like if you're like, if you're like me, you often find yourself like so absorbed with yourself too often. Absorbed with your daily tasks, absorbed with your personal problems, absorbed with what people might think about you, absorbed with trivial challenges, absorbed with the posts that pop up on your social feeds. Our noses can get so pressed to the grindstone of our busyness that we forget to look up. We forget to look ahead, to look forward. We lose sight of where we're going. We lose sight of why we're here at all, what on earth we're here for. We lose sight of what really matters. And so we need the book of, let's call it reevaluation, to see ourselves in the context of this cosmic battle that's raging on behind the scenes. Then the first of this new set of angels then speaks in verse 15. It says, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. and said, put your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, Jesus, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. See, the angel speaks, not like the first angels, to warn about judgment, but this angel speaks to invite Christ to begin his judgment. Because the harvest of the earth, he says, it's, it's ripe. In other words, it's ready. It's time. What all history is waiting for the ending of all that is wrong, the justice against all that is evil, the new heavens, the new earth, the glory that we all long for. The time is ripe, that angel says. But I want to ask you, will you hear the angel's voice? Will you hear the angels' voices? The warning voices that are sounding right now. But one day, they will be silent. And time will run out. 
And there will be no more time to say, you know, tomorrow I'll take Jesus seriously. Tomorrow I'll repent of my sin. Tomorrow I'll turn and trust Jesus. Will you hear this angel's voice? After that, two more angels appear in verse 17. We read that another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Verse 18, and another angel came out of the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape part harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia. That's about 184 miles, which is the length of Palestine which to John's readers encapsulated the whole world. So this is a way of saying blood's going to fill and cover the entire land. Well, this is a tough passage, right? One of the reasons that we, that we go through books of the Bible the way we do passage by passage and verse by verse is because one, we, met, we, we believe with our conviction that this is how scripture is supposed to be preached, but it, it also makes it so that we don't skip the hard text. We don't skip the tough passages. We trust that all of it is God's word and useful for us. What we see is that in this tough passage, it's tough because one of what it says, but also too, because of the way it says it. It's full of all these mixed metaphors, which if you remember in Revelation, when we look at these images, we need to understand that these are apocalyptic images. They're meant to convey something greater and bigger than these images that were described to us. And in these mixed metaphors, you see like, you see this sickle going up against grapes, but like you don't, you don't reap grapes with a sickle. You see a wine press of judgment yields a river of blood that flows as high as a horse's bridle, which is like the headgear uh, that you put over the horse's nose. That's not vineyard imagery. That's, that's battlefield imagery. It's meant to communicate the total defeat of God's enemies, his justice fully realized. So what do we do with this? Point number two, we got two ways to respond. Two ways to respond. The first is you can ignore the warnings of the first few angels and just trust yourself. Ignore the warnings of the angels and just trust yourself. Find yourself with the beast mark on your head or on your wrists. Letting fleshly desires uh, like uh, change your, your ideology, what you, the way you think, where you find meaning in life, 
where you find your identity, ignore the warnings and trust yourself, or number two, you can heed the warnings and trust in Christ and endure to the end. We saw this in verse 12 and 13, where John says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. What do these verses tell? Like, what's the message for the Christian in these two verses? You see, seeing this picture of the end that is coming, what is the message in Revelation 14? It's simply for the Christian to press on, trust Christ, and endure to the end. That's it. Simply to just press on and endure. The day is coming. Soon, the grief that we feel as God's children will come to an end. And instead of being condemned by men, we will be celebrated by the Messiah. Soon, the suffering of the church will be over. Until then, until then, John says, endure in the faith. That's the call. Do you notice that the wine press in Verse 20, it says the wine press was trodden outside the city. The wine press was trampled, pushed down, pressed to the point of bleeding out grape juice and wine outside the city. Do you know who else was trodden? outside the city. Jesus was. The night before he died on the cross, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He said in Mark 14, verse 35 and 36, going a, it says, going a little farther, Jesus, he fell on the ground because he was just in agony. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. The hour of God's judgment might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for, for, for you. So remove this cup from me. That, that he refers to God the Father as Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment, like saying Papa. This is significant to consider. Because all of his life, all of his life up to this point that he's endured and lived, all of this life, Jesus has, has had this amazing relationship with God the Father. But before this moment, whenever he turned to the Father in prayer, heaven flooded into his life. But here, in agony, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the cross that's before him, he turns to the Father, and all hell bubbles up. Because Jesus is about to metaphorically drink from the cup of God's wrath. That's why he says, remove this cup from me. Jesus' agony, 
his anxiety, the reason he falls down on his face in the garden is related to this cup. He says, remove this cup from me. I want you to picture this scene with Jesus in the garden. He's sitting at this metaphorical table. And on that table, there's this metaphorical cup that's filled to the brim with the wrath of God against all sin. And Jesus, he knows what the cross is going to mean for him. He knows that he's about to drink from this cup. That metaphor of the, the cup, I mean, we read it in our passage in Revelation, but you see this metaphor littered all throughout the Bible. In Ezekiel 23, it speaks of the cup of horror and desolation. In Isaiah 51, it speaks of the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, it speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. It's this picture the Bible gives us that every single time that we sin, every time we transgress against the God who made us, it's another drop in this cup. Every time you fall short of God's glory, it's a drop in this cup. Every person and all their sins are drops in this cup. And so the idea is that this cup of God's wrath should be poured out on us. We're guilty. It should be poured out on us. And it's on a table in front of Jesus instead. And he's going to drink from it so that I don't have to. He's going to drink from it so that you don't have to. He's going to absorb the just punishment of God against sin so that we don't have to. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins to to feel the weight of that. He's beginning to feel it, to taste it, to get a sense of its weight. And so Jesus here with Tears filling up his eyes, falling down off his faith. He pleads to the Father, to his Abba Father, is there any other option for their salvation than for me to have to drink from this cup? And I want you to see how he finishes his prayer at the end of verse 36. Jesus said, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In just nine words, Jesus expressed a humble faith and a submission to the Father's will that is nothing short of ultimately glorious. Ultimately, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, Just hours later, Jesus suffered. He died for our sins. He did this for us. So with his love, his great saving love as our passion and our power, let us be those who endure to the end. Let us join the angels in announcing the gospel. Regardless of how much hate we might get for it, let us keep announcing that the hour has come, that Babylon has fallen, that we should worship the living God. More than anything, that there is enough blood in Jesus' cup for the sins of the world. 
Praise be to Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.